Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 again. We're going to finish chapter 2 this morning. Are you guys excited for the word? You love the word? It changes our lives. Father, we bring this time before you and we ask that your spirit would speak. Lord, we all acknowledge that I have nothing to say this morning that can change our lives, that can help or assist. It's got to come from your breath, Holy Spirit. Lord, we need to hear you this morning. We profess that we believe your word would be totally inspired. We've got to hear your voice in it. This is your time, Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. I can't do it, Lord. You've got to speak this morning. We need you in this house. We don't want to go through the motions, God. We want your voice, your power, and your presence in our midst. God, our community needs your voice, your power, and your presence in our midst. We need the real thing, Jesus. Meet us here, we pray. Amen, amen. Tradition says he was in his early 20s when the great preacher first came to his hometown. We're not sure if he was converted then, but many believe so. I think it's safe to say that he was well aware of the ministry of the traveling duo. His father was a Greek, but his mother was Jewish. His mother and his grandmother both come to know Jesus through the ministry of these traveling missionaries. But the missionaries left as quickly as they came. And his hometown of Lystra was left with a small band of Christians And he, at some point, again in his early 20s, was forced to wrestle with the gospel message himself. Maybe it was his mother coming to believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah to save the world. Maybe it was his grandmother whispering to him the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the one who would bear our grief and carry our sorrows. Maybe it was the miracle that the great missionary performed right before he left the city. There was a man who was crippled in his city from birth, and everyone knew it. He couldn't walk. And the great preacher just looked at the man and told him to get up, and he did get up, and he walked away. The crowd was stirred in such a frenzy. They eventually became embittered because the great missionaries told the crowd that their religion was false and fake, and they'd have to turn to Jesus or experience Judgment. They became so frustrated with the missionary that they stoned him to death, drug him from the city, or so it seemed he was stoned to death because he got up too and walked on to the next city. Maybe it was that miracle that forced Timothy to wrestle with the truth of the gospel message. All we know is that by the time that Paul returned to Lystra, Timothy was a pillar of the church. He spent his time ministering, believing, and proclaiming his new faith, wondering what it really meant to his life. And I think he wrestled with the same questions that all young men wrestle with. Why am I here? What am I made for? Is my life significant? 
He had been told the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses and Joshua all his life. He could recount for you the story of Samson and his supernatural strength from memory. His grandmother made sure he could do so. He knew the story of David well being called from his father's pasture to the throne of Israel. He knew what calling was. He pondered what calling was. What does it mean to be called for such a time as this? What does it mean for him, a young 20-something-year-old man, to be called for such a time as this by this new Messiah who's recently raised from the dead? Timothy wondered, what about him? I think his heart jumped to hear that Paul, the great preacher, had returned to Lystra Paul had been gone for some time, and Timothy longed to hear the stories, hear the conviction in his voice, and the truth of the gospel preached again. But Barnabas is nowhere to be found. Paul came the first time with Barnabas, and everybody loved Barnabas. He's known as the great encourager. He was the pastoral one, the friendly one. Everybody loved Barnabas, but Paul comes into Lystra again. The city is stirred. They're excited to hear him, but he's not with Barnabas. He's with a man named Silas. And the church surely asked of Barnabas' absence. And Acts chapter 15 closes with Paul and Barnabas' great falling out. You remember Luke calls it a sharp disagreement. And the story goes essentially that Paul and Barnabas at the beginning of their first missionary journey, a young man named John Mark gave up. He packed his bag and went home. Paul and Barnabas brought John Mark with them to help, to assist, to help with carrying things, to help with ministry. And John Mark didn't have it in him and he quit and walked away. Timothy never knew John Mark. John Mark quit long before Paul and Barnabas got to his city. But as Paul enters the city with Silas, I think it becomes known that Barnabas is not with him because they had a sharp disagreement about this young man, John Mark. And I thought this week and pondered the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Again, Barnabas being the compassionate pastor, encourager one, and Paul being the um, intellectual. He has a bit of a justice nature. Paul is committed, man. He's been committed his whole life. He's memorized scripture. He'll preach from town to town. Paul is the one who's stoned to death and who will get up and go to the next town and preach. Paul has grit and people with grit value grit. And I imagine Paul saying to Barnabas, remember the words of Jesus when he said, think of Lot's wife, any man who looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And I imagine Paul saying to Barnabas, John Mark's not fit to come with us. He looked back. And I imagine Barnabas saying to Paul, yes, but a righteous man falls seven times and he gets back up. If the young boy wants to get back up, who are you to tell him that he can't? And Barnabas will actually be justified in this disagreement. Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.11, writing to Timothy, will say, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. So again, Paul hits Lystra, excites the city, but he's not with Barnabas. And everyone knows why he's not with Barnabas. He's with Silas because Paul and Barnabas had a fight over a young man who quit, who didn't have grit in him. 
And Silas is clearly going to be Paul's new Barnabas. All throughout Acts, as you read, it, the, the phrases turn from Paul and Barnabas to Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas went to Philippi. Paul and Silas prayed and ended up in Macedonia. Paul and Silas were in prison. Silas has replaced Barnabas. But as you begin Acts chapter 16, it's rather clear that Timothy is going to replace John Mark. Paul comes to Timothy's city, and I think Timothy had begun to understand that he was called, and I think Paul recognized that call. But the ending of Acts 15 is Paul's argument with Barnabas about John Mark. Paul has just been burned by a young man who quit. Is Timothy going to quit too? Every generation struggles with thinking the generation after them is lazy, no good, and lacks work ethic. Does Paul, look at this young man who's clearly called and clearly anointed and think, oh, he's a quitter. How does that conversation go? When Paul approached Timothy, did he question his sincerity? I think he might have said to Timothy, you remember the last time I was in your city and you remember the way that they stoned me to death and then they drug me out of the city and I had to pick myself up, dust myself off and keep walking. Do you remember that? Do you realize that's what you're signing up for? You know, today when we call someone to come and follow Jesus, we may, we say, come follow Jesus. He's so good. He's so kind. He's so wonderful. You can be a member of our church. We have a great building, a great community. We love each other. It's, it's wonderful. But in Paul's day, when you called someone to come and follow Christ, you were calling them to pick up their cross, be the scum of the earth. Everyone will hate you. Everyone will mock you. Your family will make fun of you. Come and be stoned with us. It'll be wonderful. I think Paul said to Timothy, you're going to have to have grit. You're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. It's often mentioned that St. Augustine wrote of Timothy that he was willing to die to all things, to leave his home, leave his family, that Timothy met that need, met Paul's command for someone to really lay down their life with zeal. And Timothy lived the entirety of his life laid down for the gospel. And I think he might have had something in him to prove that he was not a quitter. I know that John Mark quit, but I'm not John Mark. I am not a quitter. I will serve Jesus faithfully. I may be younger than you, Paul. I'm surely not as smart as you, Paul, but I am as committed to this gospel as anybody else. And time will tell that I carry the same burden and love for Jesus as you do. And time does tell. Timothy did give all of his life to the gospel. He shared in Paul's sufferings. He felt Paul's disappointments. There were days when Paul's feet were blistered and tired. His legs ached from long days of walking. And Timothy's feet were also blistered and tired. And his legs also ached from long days of walking. There were days when Paul was driven out of cities as crowds persecuted him. And Timothy stood right next to Paul, running, holding up his little old Roman skirt thing, running as fast as he could. There were nights when Paul was hungry, and so there were nights when Timothy was hungry. There, was, there were nights when Paul spent all night in prayer frustrated and anxious, and Timothy, I think, spent all night in prayer frustrated and anxious. And Timothy isn't even mentioned half the time. It's Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas, but we all know Timothy is right there. 
Eventually, Paul starts giving Timothy his own assignments. He'd be with Paul for some time, and then Paul would send him to this city or that city. There'd be some kind of problem, and Paul, rather than walking himself there, would send Timothy, began to entrust Timothy to walk. Timothy is mentioned as assisting Paul in writing six epistles, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon are all written. Somehow Timothy played a part in that. Whether he was the scribe or sat with Paul, Timothy played a part in even the composing of epistles. His name won't go down as one who played a part. He even experienced his own imprisonments. Hebrews tells us it closes in chapter 13, verse 22 with this. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if he comes soon. Timothy even has his own imprisonments for the gospel. And now as we approach the latter half of Philippians 2, again, we'll find Paul in prison. Paul is in prison, most likely in Rome, waiting for his future trial when he will either be let go or executed again and again he's told us in this epistle that his hope is that he will not be executed but he may be and so he'll write to the Philippians today and we'll read what feels like kind of a mundane travel plan passage but when you look under it you realize that it's not mundane travel plans at all but it's much more Significant, And what he'll write to the Philippian church is, um, I'm sending you back Aphroditus, who was the young man from Philippi who brought Paul um, goods from the Philippian church. He's saying, I'll send you him back and I will send you Timothy soon. And then he's going to say this. Um, Everyone else, his words are, they all... Seek their own interest, not the interest of Jesus Christ, but not Timothy. You know of his proven worth, how he has served me as a son with a father faithfully. They all, Paul in prison, worried about this church that he planted, he pastored, he has led for years, says to this church, they all Seek their own interest. All of your leaders are self-absorbed. They all are selfish. Not Timothy. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright is somewhat of an authority on Paul. Some of his work's a little bit controversial. But says that Timothy is not a man of strong first impressions. N.T. Wright suggests that Timothy comes off a bit insecure, awkward, shy. Maybe we see Paul over and over trying to encourage Timothy, let no one look down on you for youth. Fan to flame the gift of God that's in you. Timothy may be awkward, shy, not filled with charisma, but Paul will tell the Philippian church to look deeper. He has no other minister who has really sweat like Timothy, no other minister who has really bled like Timothy, no other minister who really cares about the church, is willing to not be the center of attention, thinks of other needs first, who really burns with a clear understanding of the gospel. There is no other minister who lacks selfish ambition 
and cares for the church like Timothy, Timothy alone. So as the church in this time of transition where their apostle may be executed and they are looking for future leadership, Paul says, I'll send you Timothy. He's awkward, shy, not filled with charisma, but he's the only one I've got who really burns. Look past the charisma of the current leadership. Look under it. Examine, discern what's really in the heart of the leader. Timothy alone is selfless. What an indicting statement. Let's read the passage this morning and we'll draw a few conclusions and I'll let you out of here in time to get some chicken, okay? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19, I'll read to you through verse 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I know how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send you Ephroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul is sending this letter, this letter to the Philippian church, by the hands of Ephroditus back to Philippi. They sent him to Paul, possibly in Rome, maybe in Ephesus. And Paul's now sending him back. And Paul is recommending that they receive him with joy and fellowship. Some scholars suggest they theorize that the church may have been disappointed to see Aphroditus coming back. They may have thought that he was quitting like John Mark. They may have thought, we sent you to go and to minister and to be with Paul. What are you doing coming back home, man? You're not supposed to be home. And they they think that Paul may have sent such a strong encouragement to the church to receive him um, because Paul didn't want them to, to think that Aphroditus had just quit. Paul wanted them to know that from his entire journey he had been sick and risked his life and that they should receive such men with honor. Not to look down on him for coming home, but to receive him for such honor. But I will send you Timothy for leadership. So this morning we're going to study primarily verses 20 through 22 again. For I have no one else of kindred spirit, the NASB reads, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving with his father. First, Paul says, I have no one like him for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This single verse has haunted me for years, maybe haunted me in a fruitful way. But part of being in vocational ministry is being called to stand before other people. And part of being human is liking the praise and the approval of other people. And that creates quite a conflict in the heart of a young man who's called to preach. 
And so I've preached at little events or things and, and I've studied like my brain off. I've read and prayed and studied and fasted and read and prayed and studied and fasted and got up to preach at little events and preached with all the passion that I could muster and called the crowd to respond in the altar and believed that God was going to move in power only to look at the crowd and hear crickets chirp. And I think the crowd to think this kid's a little bit crazy. And I've gone home from nights like that and sulked and felt defeated. And I've often heard the Holy Spirit whisper this verse to me. They all seek their own interest. And I've thought, if Paul looked at my life and if Paul was in the crowd, if I was in Paul's group of fellow ministers, would I land in the they all Seek their own interests. Did I study fast and pray because I wanted the approval of the crowd that I hoped that they would respond with passion and zeal, not because they were really moved by the gospel, but because they thought I preached well. Was I really after my own success rather than after the well-being of the church? They all seek their own interests. I at times feel the Holy Spirit saying to me, you Hunger and thirst for an attaboy, not to really care for my church. You seek your own interests, not those of Jesus. I read this single verse against myself often. Do I in my ministry seek my own interest and not those of Jesus? Do I lead my family in such a way that seeks my own interest and not the interest of Jesus? Do I show up to work on Monday morning in such a way that seeks my own interest and not those of Jesus? Do I interact with my church family and my community and my neighbors in such a way that seeks my own interest and not those of Jesus? Or am I burdened day after day with the interest of Jesus? Am I or am I'm not, and I wanted to invite you this morning to step into the sting of this verse with me. That question cuts me. I pray it cuts you from now on. They all. What an indictment. I was taught not to use sweeping statements, especially when you have a fight with your wife. You know, you don't say you always. Never say always. And you never say you never even if it's true, you don't say it. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to do a little marriage counseling today. Don't say all. Paul is using a sweeping statement here, and I think he means it. Paul's not one to throw around his words without intention. He's careful with his speech. Read Romans a time or two, and you'll realize that this man is an orator. He is a writer. He is, again, a philosophical mind trained in religion. He uses his words. Paul uses his words. When he says they all, he means all, every one of them. Each member of your leadership team, the whole of the entire body, all, they all. Seek their own interests. The Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, Many prefer their own credit, ease, and safety before truth, holiness, and duty. The things of their own pleasure and reputation before the things of Christ's kingdom and His honor and interest in the world. Paul says, 
Timothy will be concerned with your welfare. They will seek their own interests. They will serve their own interests. They see your lack of leadership as an opportunity to climb into the limelight. And they are not there after your well-being as a church. But underneath it, it's actually after a position, a title, praise, comfort, and honor. They all seek their own interests. Remember the Pharisees who prayed these big, long prayers, not because they actually had something to pray, but because they loved for people to look on their spirituality. They all are selfish in their ambition. And Paul invites the Philippian church to consider what lies beneath the surface of those who pursue Christian leadership among them. I was talking to a pastor recently who's a little older than myself, and he asked me if I had heard of a particular preacher, if I had read him or something like that. And I, and I had, and, and I'm not one to have much of an opinion on other pastors. I'm just not. It's, uh, I don't know what I think about myself most days. Um, so I ain't got an opinion on what you're doing over there. Um, and, and he's not either. He's really not. You know, Paul, Jesus says, you worry about that thing you got going on in your own eye and that will consume your time. Um, but I did. I said something like, I, yeah, I said, I just I don't know much about him, but I just don't love the celebrity pastor culture that we've created. And he said, um, he said, there is a subtle vanity that's gripping many of our young leaders. And then the conversation shifted. And we got in the car that night and we were driving home and um, I'm sure Haley was talking to me about what she was going to wear tomorrow or what she needed to take the kids to the doctor for or what kind of food we were going to have for dinner this week. Um, but I was talking to myself about that line. There's a subtle vanity that's gripped many of our pastors. Vanity may be the best way to describe the current trends in the modern church. Vanity. I don't say that proud of that statement. I've often told young guys who want to go into ministry that in our generation, it's more common to put more thought into what you wear than what you'll say. Say your outfits are well planned out, but your sermons are a jumbled mess. Say John the Baptist wore camel hair, but by God, he had something to say. And many, I'm sure, in our day would rather see a well-dressed, nice-looking young man give 30 minutes of positive encouragement seasoned with light humor. But I'm telling you, that does not nourish my soul. I have got to sit under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, which expounds upon the truth of this scripture and allow it to cut me and inspire me and move me, man. And as the older generation, we have got to do a better job of discipling the younger generation beyond just thinking about what they wear. And young people dress nice. I'm not against that. I know I react against it. They're always like, Caleb, you need some new shoes. I know. But when's the last time we really meditated on the word of God? Sat before the Holy Spirit in prayer and allowed him to speak. That's the beginning of ministry. Sitting before God. I need the word of God to poke and pry. To encourage and deposit. Vanity, I think, was the problem in Paul's day too. Self-seeking, conceitedness. That might be exactly what he meant when he said they all seek their own interests. 
They all use ministry as a means to attain a seat of honor. They all think their ministry is about displaying their own giftings and greatness and intellect and spirituality. They all are self-absorbed. They all seek their own interests, not the interest of Jesus. The question that must follow then is what then is the interest of Jesus? What then is Jesus interested in? First, Jesus is interested in the exaltation of his own name. First, God is jealous for his glory. First, God is concerned that the church lusts after no other lover. God is concerned with Jesus being the central fulfillment of the deep desires of our heart. God is concerned with us not loving and being infatuated with any other man. No man in the church should stand in the place of God. Ministry can first not be about a man wooing a church with his charisma, with his adrenaline, with his spirituality and his intellect. A man cannot woo the bride of Christ. Ministry must begin when we spur the bride of Christ on in loving Jesus. Jesus is the lover of the bride's heart. He is our bridegroom. God is first concerned with us loving Jesus. Second, Jesus is interested in the gospel being preached to the nations. He's interested in the prodigals joining the body of lovers of him. And therefore, he is interested in our obedience, selfless obedience in fulfilling that commission. He wants us to labor with him in this mission to redeem people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. This means Jesus is interested in you giving your time your energy, your money, your giftings, your personality, your family, your home, your home life. Jesus is interested in you bringing all of those things into his great commission. Jesus is interested in your obedience and being a church who brings the gospel to their community. Jesus is interested in your obedience. Ministers, therefore, should be interested in the obedience of the church, should spur us on towards holiness. They are concerned with their own welfare. They just want to hear you say, that a boy, Timothy, wants to see you actually put your sin down, pick up your cross, and minister to your neighbor. Jesus is interested in us expressing his nature to the earth through mercy ministry. He's interested in the poor being fed. He's interested in the sick being cared for. Jesus is interested in the orphans in our community, the foster care system, those who have no home, finding a home in a Christian family. Jesus is interested in Christian families adopting the orphan and bringing them in. Jesus is interested in the widow being cared for and not forgotten. Jesus is interested in us declaring his message, not just verbally, but also in our actions. He wants all of us, all of our life to preach the gospel, whether that's in preaching, teaching, street ministry, neighborhood block parties, inviting families over to your house just to have dinner and to talk. Jesus is interested in us really loving our community. You can't really love your community if you really love yourself. 
I was reading a book this week and I haven't had time to process all of it. Um, but it was a young woman who got, it was a young, um, woman who was a professor, um, and, um, a lesbian. She taught women's, uh, she taught feminism and gay rights and she, um, somehow or another sparked a friendship with a Presbyterian pastor and it was just a friendship and they had her over for dinner and they loved her but she used this phrase of him all the time that 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 is shaking me and it's I've been praying about it for a couple of days now but she kept saying that this minister didn't give her his spare time she he gave her his prime time the time when he should be just being able to rest with his family, he allowed her to come in and be. It wasn't like, oh, I have a spare 10 minutes later, I can give you a call. It was like, no, Sunday afternoon and I'm done with work. Do you want to come over and have a cup of tea? His prime time belonged to the gospel. And that line has has cut me up for a while because y'all know that your boy's an introvert and, 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 and my me time, I want to go take a nap. Does my prime time belong to God? Thirdly, Jesus is interested in the church being a place of real love and real care for one another. He's after our service to one another amongst the body, washing others' feet, so to speak, bearing one another's burdens, sharing in the weight of prayer, loving one another extravagantly. Jesus is after us, loving the community, preaching the gospel, yes, but he's also after the church, like calling each other to check on one another. The church being a place of healing, refreshment. The church being a place of of real compassion. If a man or woman is not interested in these things, then that man or woman is not carrying the interest of Jesus and has no worth in the kingdom. If you are self-absorbed, then you have no worth in ministry in the kingdom. But Paul says, not Timothy, you know his proven worth. Again, this comes at a time where the church is looking for leadership. And Timothy is not a man driven with natural charisma, natural leadership. And we as a church and our culture needs to remember that we're not after personality cults. We're building churches who really love Jesus above all else, not love their pastor, not love their worship leader. It's a shame. I was talking to a friend who works at a church and he's one of the associate pastors and he was saying that, that he got to preach this week. We were talking on the phone. We got to preach. I got to preach this week and he asked if I would listen to a sermon and he said, uh, he said, you know, not as many people were there as on normal Sundays. If people know the pastor's out, they, they don't come to church. Um, they only, they, they really show up when the senior pastor is speaking. And I thought to myself, what a shame to come to church just to hear one man. As if we don't come to church to encounter Jesus, to love the presence of the Holy Ghost. What a shame it is to show up to a church because you like the way a man makes you feel. And not because you really love the way the word makes you feel. The way the word inspires and convicts. What a shame it is to, to not show up on the days where your favorite man's not standing in front of the crowd. What is the church coming to church for? And Francis Chan, the pastor Francis Chan has pointed this out time and time again. He keeps saying that we keep building our churches in a way that revolve around a single personality. And the problem is, is that person going to die sooner or later? Then what you going to do? 
And it was the habit of churches years ago to raise up young people, give young people the opportunity to preach every now and again. And we as a church have been with the elders and staff. We've been talking and praying about like, how do we intentionally raise up people with giftings and leadership? And and that means sometimes letting somebody else sleep. What is Paul doing traveling with John Mark and then traveling with Timothy? Why does Paul always have a young man with him? I think because he knew he was going to die someday. And the church was bigger than just his personality. And it wasn't just about Paul having a following. It wasn't just about Paul being the greatest new preacher. Paul knew that there had to be somebody left when he was gone. And he needed to really disciple and, and teach. And now Paul's saying, it's time for you to find a new leader. Don't look at career. Look at stamina in selflessness. Timothy doesn't cause a room to swoon over him when he steps in, but Timothy's got grit. And Paul likes grit. Timothy doesn't have the kind of personality that bubbles over and everyone knows he's here but timothy's got a burn that ain't quit for years now some blisters and some scars and paul has been the honored leader for some time everyone gets excited when paul comes to town and timothy's just walked behind him for years never needing to be in the spotlight who should they look to in the coming days for leadership the one with proven worth what defines timothy's proven worth mainly sacrifice his worth is found in his sacrifice his willingness to sacrifice is the foundation of his worth all real christian ministry begins with allowing others needs to supersede your own ministry is never about the minister it's always about the person being ministered to if you can't think beyond your selfish needs and wants then you can't do ministry Preachers and pastors who step into the pulpit hoping to bring a message that everyone everyone will like. They never carry anointing. They can't carry anointing. And the days where I get up in the morning and I'm in the flesh and I really want you to swoon over my preaching. Those are the days that I will lack anointing. And I've got to die to my flesh daily. And when I step in here, it's got to be about you. It can't be about me. And when our worship leaders step up to lead songs, it can't be about you hearing how beautiful their voices are. But it's about God being exalted and you entering into that moment of exaltation. And when our prayer ministers, when you come to pray and minister to one another, it can't be about how spiritual your prayers are, how anointed you are. But you actually have to hear the brokenness of the person you're praying for. Listen to the Holy Ghost and to try to really minister to them. It has to be about them. If ministry is not about them, then it's It's not ministry. It's performance. And no one performs in the kingdom. If Jesus had been merely concerned with his own well-being, he would have never left heaven to come live amongst sinful men. And you and I would be headed towards wrath if Jesus wasn't concerned with someone other than himself. Jesus' ministry began with sacrifice and it ended with sacrifice. And your ministry, your life call will begin with sacrifice And will end with sacrifice. All of your life is about living Christ-centered. Allowing your primal 
flesh sense of selfishness to die. If you don't care about you, who will? The world says. And we say, God, God will care about me. He hasn't asked me to care about me. He's asked me to care about this church and to care about my wife and to care about this city and to care about him really being worshipped. Not to care, not to, not to sit around and worry about me. He worries about me. And if you don't sit before God long enough to really be sure of his perfect love and care towards you, you'll never be able to minister. You've got to minister from a place of perfect confidence in God's love. I, this morning, stepping out of the flesh, do not need your attaboy. Because I am sure that I have God's affirmation. Therefore, I can stand here and preach what you need to hear rather than what I think you want to hear because I don't need your affirmation. And all of ministry falls that way. Micah can lead worship in a way that he thinks the church needs to worship and should encounter Jesus. Or he could just pick all the songs that show off the perfect sweet spot in his voice. You know what sweet spot I'm talking about? That, ah, that spot. He could just do that. And we would all go, oh, Micah should be on American Idol. Or, and he probably should. Or Micah can lead worship in a way that gives other people opportunity to lead. He could try to sing songs that he thinks would really bless the Holy Spirit this morning and lead in a way that's not all about him. And praise God, we have a worship leader who does that. It's easy to use those two things as an example. But you've got to be able to pull that concept down in your day-to-day life. I, when I get off of work, want to be alone. I don't want little kids in my face. If I'm going to be a father who loves my family well, I need to put my own selfish desires down and allow those little kids to keep hitting me in the face. My three-year-old, does. she punches and she says, knuckle punch. And she says, knuckle punch in the face, Dad. Pop, pop, pop. And I'm the dummy bag, and I'm all right with that. She's caught me a few times pretty good. She's going to be a little MMA fighter soon. When you go to work, like, are you concerned with the well-being of others? Are you really trying to love, care, and bless other people? You realize, and, we, and this is a pillar of our church, you realize that you are called to ministry, not just me. You realize that you are a missionary to this community. God puts you here. You put a gospel message in your belly. You don't need a microphone to be a minister. Paul, Paul never had a microphone. Yes, he preached and taught, but that was his gifting. You realize that you carry the same message that I carry, and you work with people five days a week that I don't work with, and you either minister to them or you are concerned with your own well-being. One or the other. And I say this to you all the time. I'm going to keep saying it to you. Don't point at me and say, Caleb, do the ministry. Don't, you don't point at me and say, the church isn't growing because Caleb's not doing a good job. You don't get to point at me and say, the community doesn't love Jesus because of Caleb. No, I point right back at you and I say, you are, you are a minister too. You, have, you got some responsibility in this thing too. And you can't minister unless you die to selfishness. And I can't minister unless I die to selfishness. So let's get in the habit of encouraging one another to die into selfishness. Timothy's proven worth is the fact that he has been selfless time and time again. Timothy is not 
thirsty for the appraise of people around him. He's not hungry to hear you whisper in his ear, oh, you should be the one in the, in the limelight. No, Timothy, just keep showing up. I don't know where I am in my notes. It doesn't matter anymore. It's over. Sacrifice is the cornerstone of Timothy's worth. His longevity and consistency is the proven part. I, in my current state of spiritual immaturity, have flashes of selflessness. Flashes of really serving God. And then I have moments of flesh. And I'm still growing and praying. I felt God speak to me so clearly about some things in my heart this week that I've got to change. But Timothy didn't just have flashes of selflessness. He had years, longevity. He had serious commitment to laying down his life to the gospel. So Timothy had worth in the kingdom, but he had proven worth. It was proven because it was substantiated by its own longevity. For years, he had served the gospel faithfully. For years, Timothy had lived selfless. Serving Jesus and his body had been Timothy's main objective for decades now. And we have to grow to a place where we live selfless, concerned with Jesus' interest today. Not just cosmic interest, but what are Jesus' interests for my life today? And we've got to get to a place where we live from that posture For decades, we need to consistently, systematically live concerned with the interest of Jesus. And only when we get there will we as a church be useful to the kingdom. Paul says they all have no worth to the kingdom. They all seek their own interests Timothy has proven worth. Timothy has worth to the kingdom. We as a church can either be self-absorbed and not be useful in the hands of God, or we can die to our selfishness and allow God to pour out His Holy Ghost on us and see a real move of the Spirit in this community. But it will not happen unless you embrace death to your selfishness. Will you die or won't you die? I think Timothy died the day Paul called him. I think the day Paul called Timothy to walk with him, I think he said, you know John Mark quit on me. You remember the stones that were hurled my way. You think about, you think about the price you're about to pay. And I think Timothy died that day. I think he said, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you through thick or thin. Walked faithfully. Worship team, you can go ahead and come. The first time... Paul came to Elisha, he was stoned, drug out of the city, left for dead. Because he would not go along with pagan worship. Remember, they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermides. And Paul rebuked them sharply and said, he was no God. Jesus alone was God. Your religion is false. And so they stoned Paul, drug him out of the city. Fox's Book of Martyr tells us that Timothy died in Ephesus at the age of 80 years old because he attempted to preach the gospel during a religious procession honoring the goddess Diana, who was the goddess of Ephesus. Ponder today, Timothy, who followed Paul in his 20s, died the day Paul said, you'll have to suffer for this gospel. In his 80s, being a leading pastor in the city of Ephesus, 
And it was the day of a great religious feast. There was a religious procession, crowds of people walking through the city to honor the goddess Diana, walking towards her temple. And Timothy standing up and saying, your religion is ridiculous. You must turn, repent, and trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Timothy's been preaching this gospel all of his life. And Fox's book of Martyrs Church History tells us that they stoned Timothy in the same way that they stoned Paul. And they drug him dead out of the city because Timothy would not go along with their false worship. Timothy spent his life faithful to his conviction that Jesus was worth leaving everything behind for, was worth bleeding for, was worth dying to his own selfishness for, was worth not needing to be the center of attention for. Jesus was worth serving Paul for, even if he was never seen as the leader. And I just want you to hear the heart of Paul this morning as he ponders the possibility of his own future execution and says to the Philippian church, everybody is selfish. Not Timothy. And I want you to allow that scripture to beat your heart this morning. It's been beating me for years. They all serve their own interest. And if Paul was speaking this morning in the Holy Spirit of you, would you fall in the they all are selfish category or would you fall in the but not Timothy category? Let that chew you up and spit you out for a couple days. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.